You'll find uh, an outline for this message on panel six. That's a change, not panel five, but panel six. We're continuing our series really built around the life of King David. And one of the things that we haven't emphasized heretofore is that David was a great poet and a great musician. In the Bible, there are 150 psalms, and there are 73 to 75 of those psalms that are attributed to the authorship of David. David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to record all of these for us, if you would, to put together Israel's hymn book and give us the basis for many of the hymns that we sing today. Maybe in some ways he was in a small K, the king of scriptures. In the Psalms, there are three Psalms that go together that have always intrigued me, always, if you would, drawn my attention. First was Psalm 22, where the king is being mortally wounded for his people to heal their mortal wounds. He is first and foremost the original wounded warrior. In Psalm 23, we have the shepherd's portrait of the shepherd's shepherd. And in Psalm 24, we see David, the king, giving us a portrait of his king, the king's king, with Charles Spurgeon and others. I am convinced that David wrote this psalm after capturing the fortress that was on Mount Zion or on Mount Moriah. And that the psalm was used as the procession of the ark was being taken into Jerusalem. And so this morning, as we are in the king's presence, please stand for the reading and the hearing of the word of God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, the one who is all glorious. And we ask this day that your glory would fill this place, that the glory that is yours and yours alone would be at work here to lift our hearts, lift our eyes, to see you for who you are, to worship you 
and to praise you for the goodness and the gift that you have given us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is even now the King of glory. We ask and pray that you would be at work to glorify yourself and to change us. We ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if uh, you study history at all, you know that the corrupt and oppressive rule of King George III of England was the cause of what we celebrate this weekend, the victory, if you would, in the Revolutionary War. And supposedly, after the war, George Washington was offered the opportunity to be made king of the newly independent colonies. And he reportedly replied, I did not defeat George III to become George I. He knew the faults of men and the failures of monarchies, and he wisely declined that opportunity. Hence today, we are free from the tyranny of kings and monarchs. And while what we have today is far better, still, it is plagued with the full array of the failures of fallen mankind. And so the question that begs to be answered this morning is this. If we are to be free, and if things are to be the way they should be, what kind of a king do we need? What kind of a king do you and I need? For Israel, God had been a faithful king to them ever since he delivered them out of Egypt and broke the bondage of Pharaoh, faithfully cared for them through the wilderness, delivered them into the promised land, conquered enemies before them, literally gave them what he had promised. And he gave them a warning when they entered. He said, you are not to mingle with those who are in the land or to adopt their practices. And of course, they, like us, were promptly disobedient. And they became disobedient and they continually found themselves oppressed by those people. And God continually delivered them by judges. But more and more, they became entangled in the world around them. Entangled in that world and thinking it was better than God had even provided them to the point that they said they wanted to be like the rest of the world. They wanted a king just like the rest of the world. And Samuel the prophet was so despondent over all of this that God himself had to comfort Samuel by telling Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. And so he gave them what they wanted. He gave them a, a man that they would exalt and one that they would call king. Well, as we have learned, the glory of that particular man quickly faded. As David told us last week, the mighty have fallen. Saul had fallen. And so God required of himself that he would raise up another king, a king that would foreshadow the true king, the one that was to come. And we know clearly that that king was David. And so it is David himself in Psalm 24 
the king that tells us the kind of king he needed and the kind of king that we needed. And the first thing that the psalm makes clear to us is that the king that we need is a king who is true God. He is truly God because he created the world in all of its fullness. He is the owner of it because he created it from nothing. He is true God and there is no other. He is the one who was self-existent, who is eternally existent, who is the great I am. And in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, he reminds us that that is reflected in the original creation when he says that that one who was the Word, who was with God, and who in fact was God, who was Jesus, was the one who made all things, and nothing that has been made was not made by him. So he is a king who is true God, a God who created all things, and one to whom everybody belongs. Look at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein. There is not one of us sitting here this morning that does not belong to God. We are his. For he made us. Now, there is much more to be done that we might be fully and completely his. But by virtue of the creation, he is the one who all, to whom all people belong, everybody that dwells on earth. And then at the same time, David tells us, he is the one that sustains the creation. He is the one, if you would, who established it on the rivers, who founded it upon the seas. Those words indicate permanence, that it is built, that it is here to stay, that it cannot be shaken until he shakes it again. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Christ, who is the exact replica and radiance of God the Father, sustains the creation right now by the power of his word. In other words, if Christ were to withdraw his power, the universe would cease to exist. If you would, it would disappear in a fire, even as Peter tells us. It is sustained by the God who created it is tuned, timed, sustained, and maintained by its creator. And so, while men may make idols, God makes men, women, and boys and girls in his image. Whether they were formed from the dust of the earth or knit together in their mother's womb, we all belong to the God of creation. Can you imagine a lump of clay saying to itself, I'm going to make myself into a beautiful vase. Could that possibly happen? No more could that happen than a lifeless lump of soil say to itself, I am going to organize myself and over time I will become a human being. It cannot happen because it is just mere matter. If we are to have a king, it cannot be a man. It must be one who is true God. Now, I'd like you to imagine something just for a moment. 
Imagine that next year, the Cowboys are going to be in the Super Bowl. Well, I can tell by the laughter, the expectations may not be that high, but just imagine that Jerry Jones or Stephen would come to you and say, hey, I would like you to come to the Super Bowl, which is being played in my stadium, and sit in my booth and watch the Super Bowl. Now, even if you laughed at that last line, you would probably say yes. And if you were going to the game with him, you wouldn't be worrying about getting through security. You wouldn't be worried about whether or not you got to that booth, there would be a seat there for you, and you could see the game. You wouldn't be concerned about it because of the one who had in, issued the invitation and the one who was taking you there to that game. Now think about it for a minute. Think about the one who issued the invitation in the gospel. The one who said, come unto me all you who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your soul. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The one who issued that invitation, issued it, if you would, with a nail-scarred hand. It was an invitation written in blood and it was extended to us with another hand that was pierced through with a nail. That's the invitation that we have from one true God who has made himself and declared himself to be our king. The question that sort of jumps out to me, I don't know if it jumps out to you, what kind of a king would issue, issue such a gracious invitation to a poor beggar, if you would, a street corner panhandler like me? Maybe some of you passed some of those on the way to church this morning. And your heart went out maybe to them in compassion because of their basic condition. But how many of you stopped, reached into your pocket, pulled out your wallet, took out all of your money, gave it to them, and said, come, get in my car. I want to take you home to my air-conditioned house, get you out of this heat. I want to feed you, and I want to provide for you. I want to do that. Anybody do that? I don't do that. I might have a little urge to help them, but I never take action, dramatic action of any kind to help them. And so we find ourselves in the exact same condition. And so what we need in a king is one who redeems his people while they are his while he owns us by virtue of creating us, we must be redeemed from our plight. And the psalm puts before us the question, who, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And it says those who have clean hands and a pure heart. I'm not sure about you, but I am sure about me. My hands are contaminated with the sins I have done. My heart is darkened by the thoughts that I have, and I am not able to ascend the hill of the Lord or stand in his holy place. Something has to happen if that is going to be reality 
for me, I am unfit to make that climb up Zion's Hill. I have to have somebody else to climb it for me. Somebody else to climb the mountain of the Lord. As you look at the Old Testament record, the fortress that was on Mount Zion or Mount Moriah was a Jebusite fortress. And that fortress had not been conquered by anybody. In God's providence, he had left that fortress for David to conquer. For the king, if you would, who would emulate Christ, that would be his fortress to conquer. And it was him who would do it. And if we're going to ascend that hill, he had to ascend it before us. And we can't ascend it on our own because we don't have any righteousness of our own. It talks about things that we haven't done, but we've done them all. It's, if you would, lifting up our soul to what is false or to an idol or swearing deceitfully, if you would, to try to attempt to attain a righteousness of our own, and it is clear from the record in the psalm, in the record in scripture. We do not have a righteousness of our own. And just like the people of Israel turned away from their God, so we have turned away in Romans chapter three. This dilemma that we have is repeated over 16 times. None are righteous, no, not one. All have turned away. And so, we find that what we need is blessing and vindication. And you look at verse 5 where it says, the one who is able to ascend the hill, the one who will ultimately do that, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness or vindication from the God of his salvation. That's what we need. We need a blessing which literally justifies us which makes us righteous. And the psalm said, this is the generation of those that seek him. Well, what is that generation? It's the generation, if you would, of regeneration. It's those who have had their hearts circumcised, who have had the heart of stone taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh. Something that comes solely and only from the blessing of our God who vindicates us. You know, at almost every occasion is somehow special or somehow commemorating something, we hear the hymn Amazing Grace over and over again. And I've heard two reactions to that hymn. One is one of my personal reactions, is that I love that hymn because it speaks right to me where I am and who I am. Other people don't like that hymn because it says, I'm not a wretch. Oh, but you are. That's not an insult, that's a diagnosis. But there's nothing wrong with a diagnosis if there's a perfect cure. There's nothing wrong for a difficult diagnosis if there's someone who offers a perfect remedy. And so we have the beauty of what God is telling us about our king. Even though we are unable to climb that hill, ascend that hill on our own, he will provide for us all that we need. We need not fear the diagnosis because the one who has diagnosed us 
is the one who stands ready to redeem us with the price of his own life, with the price of his blood. All of this comes to us to point and tell us that any supposition, any idea that we have earned or deserved the grace of God is, has no base whatsoever. There is no earning it. There is no deserving it. It is solely and surely an act of God's blessing. The generation of those that seek him are the generation that he has sought. He sought and found us. Jesus, as he's making his way finally up to Jerusalem, goes through Jericho, and there in Jericho, he finds a sinner, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, one who was despised by everybody. And Zacchaeus is a short guy and he can't see him, so he climbs a tree so he can see Jesus. And Jesus comes to Zacchaeus and he finds him up a tree. Did Jesus find you up a tree? Found me up a tree. And he tells Zacchaeus, tonight I must come to your house. And while he's at Zacchaeus' house, he says this. He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he came. That's why he came. He came to redeem. And because we are redeemed, and because we live in the world in which we live, where the, if you would, the evil trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil, which is all around us, day in and day out, which would tempt and goad us into sin, because that is there, the king that we need must be a king who is almighty to save. Verses 8 through 10 really portray for us exactly such a king. A king who will be able, once ascended the hill of the Lord, will be able to command the doors of heaven to swing open wide and let the sinners saved by grace to come in. We need a king who is able to defeat every foe. In verse 8, one who is strong and mighty and mighty in battle. After the Lord delivers Israel from Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army is destroyed in the Red Sea, there is the song of Miriam and Aaron. And in the song of Miriam and Aaron, they say this. He, the Lord, is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He is able to defeat all of our enemies. He is the one Joshua met outside of Jericho. And when Joshua asked him, are you on our side? The Lord really tells them that's not the most important question. The most important question is, are you on my side? For he is the Lord that could defeat all the enemies. He's the one who made walls of water stand in the Red Sea, and he's the one who made walls of stone fall in Jericho. He is the Lord Sabaoth. He is the Lord, the commander, if you would, of heaven's armies. Now, this may be humorous to me, but it's sort of humorous, I think. I feel a little bit sorry for Goliath. 
Because when he went on to meet David in that valley, he didn't stand a chance because the Lord was on David's side. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us because our king is on our side, we are more than conquerors. We're not just winners. We're more than conquerors. There is nothing in this whole creation that can come against us and separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our King, because he is mighty to save, and he can defeat every foe. He is the one with unlimited power, power that will cause the ancient doors of heaven, the gates and the uh, doors to swing open wide that we may come in. Remember what happened after the fall in Eden? Adam and Eve were barred from re-entering the garden. The Lord set angels with flaming swords to guard the entrance that they could not pass. That's nothing more than the security system, the gates of heaven that will only open for the king of glory himself. And so, who is this? King of glory. He's the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And as we ask the question, what kind of king do we need? We need the King of glory. You and I, we all need King Jesus, the Lord Jesus. I think many of you have probably been to Washington, D.C. and visited several of the national monuments. The most visited is the Vietnam Memorial. And uh, while I am an Army guy and a Vietnam veteran, that isn't my favorite memorial. It's the Marine Memorial. The Marine Memorial commemorates what happened on the island of Iwo Jima. That was the bloodiest battle in the history of the Marines. Lasted about 36 days. 7,000 Marines or Navy personnel were killed in action. 20,000 were wounded in action. And 27 medals of honor were awarded. Last week, a Marine named Woody Williams, age 98, died. He was the oldest surviving Medal of Honor winner from World War II. He was on Iwo Jima as he watched the flag being raised on Mount Suribachi. As four Marines had ascended that hill, carried the flag, and planted it there, he saw them. And that's what's memorialized in that memorial. And those four Marines, I'm sure, have long since departed this world. But there was another wounded warrior that ascended another hill for us. Mount Zion, or Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem was, the high point of that hill, geographically, is literally Golgotha. And our Savior, the king of glory carried his own banner and ascended 
that hill for us. He planted his banner there, and there he died upon it. But while those four Marines that planted the flag on Iwo Jima are long gone, the one who planted his banner on Calvary's hill is alive. He is raised from the dead and he reigns forever, even now, as the king of glory. Tomorrow, 4th of July. And in our neighborhood is going to be the annual 4th of July parade. And the kids in the neighborhood are going to decorate their bike and get face paint and red, white, and blue. And even poor dogs are going to have to wear red, white, and blue outfits and walk on the streets as they celebrate their independence. Just being part of that parade. There have been a lot of great parades to celebrate victories. One after the war in World War I and then the one in New York after World War II. But there's another parade that's going to happen. And it's a parade you want to be a part of. The Apostle Paul says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable is clothed itself with the imperishable, and mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. In the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised to meet the Lord, and they with him will ascend the hill of the Lord. The gates of heaven will swing open wide, and the victorious will enter in, and they will stand forever in that holy place. And behold the King of glory with all of his radiance and with all of his beauty. You do want to be in that parade, don't you? The parade that goes up the hill of the Lord to heaven above. That parade has a place for you if you have a place for Christ in your heart. The King of glory calls you today to bow before him in body and mind and spirit, spirit and receive him and him alone as your Lord and as your Savior. If you haven't ever done that, I would urge you, do it today, even do it now. Amen.